One of the things that we really feel like over this time that God has been asking of us or asking us to press into is emotional health. And so we just finished our series called Different, talking about um, anxiety and being emotionally healthy. Because a lot of times in church, we talk about being spiritually healthy, but you really can't be spiritually healthy if you're not emotionally healthy. That's really important. And so we've been talking about that. We've been kind of pressing into that. And Derek and I talk a lot about faith walking. Um, and faith walking is a great tool for that. What faith walking like counseling or therapy does is really helps you uncover what it is that needs to be healed. But the truth is that God is the one who heals you. Faith walking doesn't heal you. Counseling doesn't heal you. Therapy doesn't heal you. God is the one who heals you. So all these things are just tools to help you figure out what you need to lay before God to achieve that healing. And so the good news, many of you are doing faith walking, but the good news is that you don't have to do faith walking because we all have access to God, who is the healer. So faith walking doesn't have the market cornered on healing. God is the one who does the healing. So that's one of the things that we really feel like God has been calling us to press into. And the second one is a little hard to explain. I really feel like God has been calling us into looking at what it was like to be a part of the early church. And what are the things that the, they did in the beginning and did for many, many years? What are the rhythms? What are the ways that the church has followed Jesus? For many years. So during this quarantine time, I have been fiercely aware that God doesn't want us to go back to the way we did things before. And I don't really know exactly what that means. I feel like God's revealing that little by little. Um, but one of the things that I think that it means is that we need to go all the way back and figure out what life was like when Jesus walked the earth and shortly after. And so one of the things that kind of goes along with that is that um, even the Jews, when Jesus showed up, they would have this cycle of reading scripture. We can see in Isaiah, in one of the, um, or not in Isaiah, he read Isaiah, in Luke, um, one of the very first times that Jesus kind of announced that he was the Messiah, he stands up in the synagogue and reads from Isaiah. And that was a cycled reading. It was time for that reading. He stood up and read the reading. And so even from the time of Moses, they would have cycles of times when you would read certain scriptures. And it was the Torah. And so now we have the lectionary. How many people know what the lectionary is? Not very many. Okay. So the lectionary is a cycle of reading scripture. And so today we're going to begin preaching from the lectionary. Um, because I really think, Evan's excited, I really think that it's something that God is calling us into, to look at like what has been done, to join with Christians who've been doing things a certain way for so many years. Um, and I say that to say, it doesn't mean that we're never going to do another series. Sorry, I have to like attach it to my face so people can hear me. Um, doesn't mean that we're never going to do another series. If God breathes something into us like we really feel like he did with the different series we might take a break from the lectionary because the holy spirit's in charge but i really feel like god wants to amaze us with what he's going to do and how relevant his word can be um, if we'll just kind of let him speak through those things so today we're starting the lectionary 
thing about these clips is that they help if wind comes, but if they make it hard otherwise. Okay, so I wanna start by asking you a question. How many of you have been to Lowe's recently? Very important question. There's a lot of people, yeah. Anna has been to Lowe's. Um, it's crazy there. Like, especially over quarantine, like I have never, ever seen it. The parking lot is full to the brim. Like places, I didn't even know they had parking far out that far, like by Aldi. And so it's really full. And I think with people having so much extra time and actually being in their houses and recognizing there's things they probably need to fix, um, people are fixing things and doing things. Even just this morning, I was talking to Mary and she was saying that she'd painted her house. We've painted our house and decided we're going to do this remodel ourselves. Um, so we'll see how that goes. So Lowe's is really full. I have another question for you. How many of you, some of you might not know, but how many of you live in a house that's more than 50 years old? What about more than 80 years old? Oh, lots of us. We live in Altoona. Yes. My house is 97 years old, which is crazy to me. Um, but I think because of where we live, I think that lots of times people want to kind of save money when they're fixing their house or they think that they can do it just well enough. And so as we've lived in our house um, that was built in 1923, um, it has 97 years of people like getting it done, you know, um, or just like kind of making it look nice. And so once we got in there, we really realized how many things were like a guy who lived there who thought he could fix it. And if you live in Altoona, usually the homeowner is the one that like, thinks they can do it. Um, but if you can't do it, then you got to call, I know a guy, you know, everyone in Altoona has a guy that can do some stuff. And so you can call, I know a guy and he can fix it. And it's cheaper. But the fact of the matter is, is that we just often, we don't, or I know a guy, doesn't fix it the way it really should be fixed. Fixes it well enough to get by. We just had our chimney actually taken off our house. But whenever the people went up there to, to get it down, he told Derek, like, somebody's been up here doing some stuff, and they shouldn't have been doing it. So I think there's so many houses that just have been fixed good enough. And I have a friend who was telling me about her sister who recently bought a house. It was their first house. Her sister and her husband bought a house. Um, and it had been flipped. So everything in the house was brand new, clean, beautiful. And so as they lived there, they started seeing little sewer flies kind of flying around. Um, and they did some investigation, but they couldn't figure out what it was. And so after a while, just recently, they realized that the floor around their toilet was wet and it kind of stayed wet, like you could clean it up, but it didn't get better. Um, and so they called a plumber and he kind of investigated a little bit and realized that the subfloor around the toilet was rotted, completely rotted. And so the floor in the bathroom had been new when the people flipped the house, so they would have had to know that the floor was rotted. 
And so now my friend's sister has to completely replace their bathroom, both bathrooms in their house because of this issue that some guy, maybe it was a lady, I don't know, just decided they were going to put some laminate flooring down because it looked nice, that they weren't going to incur the cost of like doing it right and actually ripping up the floor because it was rotted. They were just going to make it look okay and kind of pass it on to the next person. And so I tell you this story because I think sometimes we do that sort of thing when it comes to emotional healing or emotional health. I think sometimes we see things that have been there for as long as we can remember, and there's like a twinge of pain. We recognize that, like, if I really get into this, it's going to really hurt me. So I just, like, cover it up with fake smiles or working really hard to get people doing everything for everybody so that people will like you and all these things. And the thing that really gets in the way of emotional healing is sin. And I think when I say sin, often people think of sins, behaviors like gossiping or lying or fits of rage or whatever. I mean, I'm sure we all have our own brands, some of them similar and some of them different. But really, to get to the heart of things, we have to look at our sin patterns, the ways that we show up in the world. And this is very connected to the emotional healing that we were talking about. Faith walking calls this habitual disobedience. So the ways that you show up in the world that are not really trusting God, not really that the way it's supposed to be, and out of those things come our behaviors, which we would call sins out of those ways of being that are much deeper come the behaviors that we often see. They're really just symptoms of the problem. And so often I think instead of like ripping that up, ripping up the roots of the problems, just like the sewer rotted floor in my friend's sister's bathroom, we cover it up. And we do all the things that we've learned to do to make us feel safe because we know it's going to be painful. I think that we know if we kind of dig into emotional health that it's going to cost us something and it's going to be painful. And if you don't know that, I'm here to tell you, it's going to cost you something and it's going to be insanely painful, but it's worth it. My friend Evan says, and I agree that, right here, this guy, he says that all sin kind of boils down to not trusting that God's good and not trusting that God can be trusted. And I think that's true. That's why we show up in the ways that we really would rather not. So we go around kind of managing our sin behavior like white knuckling it and trying not to, you know, whenever you go into the break room at work and people are gossiping, you go in and think, okay, I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to do it. And maybe if someone starts to gossip, maybe you just like run out of the room or, it, or you just do it because it's hard not to instead of like figuring out why I feel like I need to do that. Or instead of telling people no, you kind of get busy saying yes making yourself really tired. 
Or instead of really sitting down with God and figuring out what it is, what's the shame that you feel or the lack that you feel, you just start serving him in all the ways you can think of. Every time someone asks you to serve him, you say yes. Or anytime somebody asks you to serve them, you say yes, trying to keep them. But the fact of the matter is that we don't have to do that. There's a better way. I wouldn't say it's easier, but it's better. It's way better. It's the way of Jesus, and he's good, and he's able to be trusted. We're going to be kind of looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. Kind of wait till you get there. Okay, we're just going to read um, verses 1 through 11 to get started. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So we're going to stop there. It says that followers of Jesus have been baptized into his death. So let's talk a little bit about Jesus' death. Jesus was falsely accused really doing nothing. He was beaten. He was cursed. He was spit on. And that's the kind of death that Jesus suffered. He took on everything, every bad thing that we feel. He bore all that for us. So sin of all kinds, shame, guilt, condemnation, despair, depression, whatever the things are, he took that on himself, every painful thing. And that's the kind of death that we're baptized into. When we go under the water, we're joining in Jesus in that kind of death. And it's painful. Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says, when Christ bids a man, he bids him come and die. So this sharing in Jesus' death isn't just, it's not just a cute thing that we say. And it's not enough that we just believe that Jesus died for us. We need to be co-crucified with Christ. And that means everything that's Jerry is dead. Everything that's you without Jesus needs to be dead. Painful. Everything that I've built to protect myself, every way that I show up to deflect pain, often called sin, all of those things need to die, just like Jesus died. And so I think for some of you, as I talk about the pain of death, the pain of sharing death with Jesus, you kind of feel that 
And I think often we can react one of two ways. The first way is that we start running. We sense the pain and so we get real busy. We binge Netflix or we have parties or we call our friends or we do watch, look at Facebook incessantly or we do whatever the things are that make us busy and make us not have to think about it. We have a really hard time sitting in the quiet and so we just get busy and we start running. So that's the first way. And the second way, I think there are others who feel that pain, who can't run from it or don't run from it and are actually kind of swallowed up by the pain. And so maybe you feel that humiliation of Jesus' death and shame all the time. It colors everything you do. So there are two ways that we generally respond if we really are thinking about joining in Jesus with his death. But the good news is that's not the end of the story. The death of Jesus is not the end of the story. We also share in the new life of his resurrection. Verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. So because of our death with Jesus, we also share in his power for overcoming the sin patterns in our lives. I'm sure many of you have heard this prayer that I'm going to read or seen it, read it, you know, on the interwebs. And it says, Dear Lord, so far I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. But in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed, and I'm going to need a lot more help. So in the same way, Paul says, if you're dead, like if you're sleeping, you can't sin. He says, consider yourself dead to sin. So because we share... In the death of Jesus, we are also dead. Therefore, sin has no power over us. Jesus paid for it all, and we share in his new life. And that's the end, right? Do you see that working out in your life? I think for a lot of my church life, that's where it stopped. It was like you've died with Jesus... You've been raised to life. Stop sinning. Just stop it. That thing that you do, quit it. Quit doing it. You're dead to sin. Get it together and stop it. But that didn't work for me. And I spent a lot of time trying to fix myself and really hating myself because I couldn't (laughs) because those things were still alive in me. 
And I really spent a lot of time thinking that whenever everybody else surrendered to Jesus, somehow some magic wand was waved over them and they just didn't sin anymore, but that didn't happen to me. So I was especially broken because I can't stop sinning. These things keep coming up. But we have to keep reading. We can't stop there. Verse 12 says, Therefore do, sorry, therefore do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Do you hear what Paul says? He says, present yourself to God. That's my job. Present myself to God. Not fix yourself, not get it together. Present yourself to God. I can do that. <laughs> Clearly, Paul knows that even after we've accepted Jesus, we still sin. He's writing this letter to Christians. And even earlier in the letter, he talks about how their reputation precedes them for being great Christians, but here he tells them to stop sinning. So it's not that he's expecting that they just quit it. He's kind of telling them how to work out their transformation with Jesus. Jesus paid for all of it, and I share in his new life. That's true. But there's a process that comes after that. I think often, so often we miss it, and it just causes us so much shame that's never intended. Because of Jesus, sin is no longer our master. That is true. And it's finished. That's done. But we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. And so the part of us being completely sanctified, completely in the resurrection life of Jesus, is kind of the not yet. When Jesus comes back, we'll be completely sanctified. We'll be like him. But he hasn't come back yet. That hasn't happened yet. Paul Archdemeyer, a New Testament scholar, says, since Christians share in that life, that is the resurrection life of Jesus, but do not yet possess it, they are still open to the possibility of falling back into sin. Old habits die hard. They must therefore strive not to fall back because they have been given this new life. So how do we do that? How do we strive not to fall back? We present ourselves to God instead of being controlled by the sin habits that live inside of us. And the fact of the matter is, we are built to be controlled by something. God made us to be dependent on him. He made us in, that our, in, in our design, we are made to be dependent. On him is how it works best. But if it's not him, we'll be dependent on other things like ourselves to protect ourselves. So there's really only two choices. You can be controlled by sin or you can be controlled by God. There's like really no middle ground. And so the things that are inside of us, so many of us do things automatically. We all do. We just learn how to show up in the world to keep ourselves safe. The gossiping, the lying, the porn watching, 
all of the things, the overindulging in any way, really, we do that to protect ourselves and often to self-medicate. We just know how to do that. So Paul says, present yourself to God so that you don't automatically present yourselves to something else. That's the alternative. Present it to God or fall further and further into sin and let those things be more and more entrenched in your life. A changed life is the fruit of saying yes to Jesus. It's not the currency with which we make him love us. I think we often get that backwards. We don't fix ourselves so that God will love us. Because God loves us, we run to him when we know that we're broken. We uncover those things and present those things to God. And so what does that look like? Let me work that out a little bit. That looks like spending time with God. Quiet time so that he can talk to you. Quiet time without your phone. Quiet time without other people. Quiet time without the radio. Just being quiet. And the beauty is, like, he can change you even without you being aware of the changing happening. We don't always have to know. We don't always have to recognize it. Spending time with God and inviting him into our brokenness is never wasted time, even if we're not aware of what's happening. How else? It looks like whenever we see the things in us that we don't like, we refuse to cover them back up. That's so messy. <laughs> and it's not cute. It's just not. But we're not going to get any better unless we do that unless we go through that process. And I think this is a pretty good place to be messy. Like, that's one thing we are, is messy. It's an unwillingness to pretend in a world that is constantly pretending. That's how we present ourselves to God. It's not fix yourself. It's not get it together. It's let God and really a few trusted friends see the crap and ask them to pray for you, and ask God to change it. And then if he tells you to do something, then you should do it. Very often he doesn't. He just tells you how much he loves you in the middle of it. That's what that looks like. It doesn't look like fix yourself or get yourself together. But we do have to present ourselves to God. He's the one who does the changing. But he gave us free will, and we can cover it up if we want.